um, I, I make sure that the, the reader understands every medical term that I say. And they do because even though there is a lot of there is a lot of jargon, everything serves the story. But when you start reading Grateful Guilt, which is the name of Stephen's book, it moves along. It's it's a very quick read. And and going back to what you just said, you know, you wanted uh, you you wanted to inform the reader as much as much as you can because uh, you were not necessarily informed. You were talked to rather rather than you know engaged in you know as as yeah, you. So as a through. child, I was talked over. Yeah, you know, because that was in the fifties, and uh, uh, yes, I'm as old as a rock. And yes, um, but um, back then, uh, you know, children would just be seen and not heard, and the doctors. They didn't tell the children anything. They they just said, okay, you know, parents would say, okay, you're going for an operation tomorrow. You know, act like Buck Rogers putting on your mask. And, and off you went, and you had no idea what was going to happen to you or your body. And nobody told you anything back then. Uh, so um, that idea being talked over was really a strong uh, premise in the in the early part of the book uh, because that's that's what happened. They just, they would talk in words thinking that you couldn't understand and but they they over, always overlook the fact that children can glean, they can read body language, they can see facial expressions, they can feel the gravity of the words and, and what it's the effect it's having on your parents. And they always acted like there was nothing the kid could figure out, you know? Which is what, which is which is remarkable when you read this in twenty twenty. We are three or four decades into the age of public relations, so to speak. You know, we're Kaiser Permanente commercials are ubiquitous, and there's a whole approach to medicine that's a lot more inclusive. It is far more of a dialogue today, at least, I mean, for the most part, for the most part, you know. That's actually, that's actually part of what the book is trying to accomplish. Is, um, part of what I want to accomplish with the book is I want to have, I'm now on a mission where I'm trying to get patients and doctors and hospitals to understand each other better because there's still huge gaps there. And I think that if patients, doctors, and hospitals understood each other better, I think there would be fewer lawsuits. I think there would be better outcomes for the patients and for the doctors and the hospitals. And there's still that gap that needs to be addressed, and that's um, part of my mission after I wrote this book. The name of Stephen's book is Grateful Guilt, Grateful Guilt Living in the Shadow of My Heart, which you can find in paperback at Amazon, Google Books, Waterstone, Barnes & Noble, Best Deals, Dolphin Bookshop, Turn of the Screw Bookstore. Where's Tur- Where's Turn of the Screw Bookstore? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> as long as they're selling my book, it's great. <laughs> Turn to the Screw Bookstore, wherever that is, wherever fine books are sold online in bookstores. Uh, let's see, the website is uh, GratefulGuilt.com, correct? Yeah, www.GratefulGuilt.com, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's... My trailer is in there, and by the way, my trailer is, if you have any idea that you want to read the book and you're not sure, go to my, go to my website and look at the trailer, you'll read the book. And and once you read the book, if you like me, if you like uh, one of the commenters on uh, GratefulGuilt.com, I'm not kidding. You will not want to put the book down. It's very, very absorbing. It's almost like uh, it's not quite Twilight Zone light, but uh, th- and this this goes to this goes to one of the other things that is central to the book, which is we mentioned in our open that Stephen was born. Um, 
the colloquial term is he was born a blue baby, which means you were born with incorrect plumbing in your heart, correct? Yeah, I had holes in my heart, and blue baby meant that you were cyanotic, that, you, that there was not enough oxygen. And um, I had um, my, my first defects when I was a child, I had um, what they called atrial septum defect, which means the top chambers of the heart. You know, there's two chambers at the top, and they're, they're divided by a wall like a cartilage kind of wall, and um, it's not really, but something like that. And I had a hole in that wall, and it was making blood shunt between those two chambers when they shouldn't have. And um, and that was making my heart um, get enlarged. And then when they went to do the first operation, uh, and back then, that was the heart transplants of its day. When I had my first operation at the age of five, uh, for my first operations for my heart. My first three operations were the day I was born. Mm -hmm. Those were different things. But the, when I had my first open heart surgery at the age of five, the survival rate back then was 50%. And then they found out that I had a second hole, and they couldn't close it while they were in there the first time because I was just too weak. So they closed it, and they said, if he lives, a, if he lives for the year, we'll come back and try again. But... Um, to that point, no one had lived through two open-heart surgeries for the ASD repair until I came along. I was the first, which I'm very very grateful that I was the first, you know? Yes, and, and in a way, you're grateful to your family's medical history because, and you tell me if I got the chronology wrong, they did not discover the hole in your heart until you were tested for tuberculosis at age five. Yes, because my grandfather had tuberculosis, so the whole family had to get tested, and that's how they found it. Yeah. So yeah, so if it if if it weren't for you know the routine testing of of tuberculosis when you were five, I would not be talking to you right now. No, I probably would have died within a couple of months of that. But this goes back to another. Now, once upon a time, you have no way of knowing this, but once upon a time, I worked for about a year for a doctor in the New York area who specialized in dissociation, which is basically it is you know, creating a mental distance uh, between yourself and whatever reality. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's, a very, that's, that's a very narrow, short thumbnail speech of a very complex condition. But uh, you didn't necessarily know this at the time, but... You created this fantasy uh, at, at the age of five to help you cope with the fact that you're five years old and you're being shuttled into hospitals and, and examination rooms, and you know it's it's all very cold as we as as we just alluded to, which is the, which is the culture at the time because medicine was a lot more cold and clinical than it, than it tends to be today. You know, even though as as you just said, one of your goals is to address that because there's still a lot yeah, of, there's still a lot of room to improve there. Yeah, but the, okay, the fact that you're an extraordinary person with extraordinary t intestinal fortitude to survive all that you have overcome and all the procedures that you have overcome 39 years ago, um, you know, because you're 39. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's me. <laughs> but, but... uh well, I tell my wife. <laughs> yes, but going back to the idea of dissociation and the cave, I mean, when, yeah. when, when you were five years old and 
you know, look, that's a lot to deal with. When you're five years old, you're not supposed to be spending most of your time in a hospital bed and, and, in, and in and out of hospital wards. You're supposed to be playing and watching TV and, you know, and, and, and pretending you're Buck Rogers. And uh, you created this strategy, which you call the cave, where you sort of, when things were very stressful and when people, or when doctors were probing you and when nurses were probing you, you sort of transported yourself into this alternate world, and that helped you cope with all the medical uncertainty going on around you. I'm absolutely convinced that it's one of the reasons why I survived, um, because I wasn't there for it. You know, now there were times like when I came out of my first surgery, and the pain was just you know, I mean, I, I had you know, I was five years old. I had no idea you could be in that much pain when I was five years old. You know, but um, when they're doing other things to you, they hurt you a lot. Yeah. And and um, the only way I could survive that was to, I don't know how I figured it out. I don't know what gave me the idea to go into my cave. I've had psych psychologists and stuff tell me how remarkable this is and all that. But to me, I was just trying to survive. I knew I, that's one of the things. I knew I was in the fight for my life. My parents wouldn't tell me. The doctors wouldn't tell me. But I knew it. And, uh, you know, and I'm watching children around me in the same ward Go, go to operations and never come back. And my mother was very honest with me about that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, sometimes they wouldn't come back because they were going to um, intensive care after the surgery. But a lot of times they weren't coming back because they were on their way to the funeral home. And my mother was honest to me about that. So I knew that, well, if these kids are leaving and not coming back, that could be happening to me. And it made me, it, it, I built this cave really very quickly, uh, almost immediately after admission when I was in the hospital for the month for the first time. And it, I, really, I really credit it with my survival because I wasn't there for a lot of it. They could actually do things on me without Novocaine and I wouldn't feel it. <laughs> no, no kidding. I'm not kidding. Yeah. I, I, could, I disassociated that much. Now, that wasn't healthy for me in the long run as I got older, Right. but, but it saved my life. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, look, in later years, you learn other strategies like visualization without the extreme distancing yourself. Um, yeah. Otherworldly. Going to a procedure now, I visualize myself on my friend's sailboat. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a much healthier way of doing it, you know? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. On the line with us is Stephen Taibbi. Stephen was born cyanetic, which is, uh, which as Stephen just explained, uh, he was born with his heart not pumping enough to properly oxygenate his blood. If that wasn't enough, Stephen was also born with three birth defects, all of which required operations from a very young age and continuing throughout his life, including two open heart surgeries and two heart transplants. Each of these procedures were accompanied by feelings of gratitude and survivor's guilt. Stephen talks about this and more in a moving new book called Grateful Guilt, Living in the Shadow of My Heart, which you can find in paperback Amazon.com, many other places wherever fine books are sold online. For more about Stephen's story, to look at the trailer, to get a preview of the book, GratefulGuilt.com, GratefulGuilt.com. This is apropos of nothing. One of the birth defects, if I remember correctly, your thumbs were in, both inverted? No, they were both pointed towards the left. Okay, they're okay. They're both. Pointed. I always told when I got older, I always told people it's because I hitchhiked too much. You well, know? well, there, there you go. But it's, it's. This is apropos of nothing. We just did a show, uh, a segment on the old Invaders, uh, TV series that Quinn Martin did in the '60s, 
And the aliens there, they, they had defects on their fingers, except their defect was with their pinky, not their thumb. Uh. That is apropos of nothing. But uh, <laughs> uh, another, another moment that made me stop and say, wow, is now you spent much of the time between the years of age five and age six, you spent much of that time in, the hos- in and out of the hospital, and you've got three siblings. And, uh, Brothers and a sister. Yeah. And we talked about how, you know, the creating the cave, the mental cave, was what, the, what you needed to do to survive. So, again, it shows that you were very remarkably perceptive for someone at such a young age. There's, a, there's another moment of insight that made me say, wow, that's great, and but also kind of made me, it, it, was, it was also a little haunting. It has to do with the story, the first time your siblings visited you in the hospital, but they were on the outside looking in, and you were on the inside looking out, and you had another sort of aha moment that kind of crystallized for you at, the, at a young age for a very first time. Yes, that was actually a really big moment in my life. Um, my, I was in the second floor of this ward that was that with all with all these other children, and um, it was one big room, and there was, um, if I remember, it was uh, eight beds on each side, and so sixteen beds. And uh, I'm standing at this big window down at the end from my room, from my from where my bed was, and um, there's my brothers and sister under a tree sitting on a green blanket. And they're waving at me happily, and I'm wavely, happy, happily waving at them. You know, I was in the hospital that time for 31 days, and I missed them, and they missed me. But all of a sudden, it dawned on me that nothing would ever be the same again, because even my parents, who visited me every day, had no idea, really, what was happening to me. Nobody has any idea what's happening to you in a hospital. You're the one who knows what's happening. People can visit you. People can stay. My wife, had no, on my last transplant, she practically lived in my room. She didn't know what was going on because she's not there for all of it. And my parents certainly weren't there. They were allowed there an hour a day. They certainly weren't, weren't aware of what was going on. And I realized that the family was never going to be the same again, never. And it was, going to be, and it was all my fault that things were going to change in the family that would never come back, that the dynamics of the family were going to be forever changed just because of what was happening to me in that hospital. And it turned out to be that I was correct. We'll talk some more with Stephen after this quick time out here on TV Confidential. Are you from California, Illinois, New York, Georgia, or any of the other 39 states that charge state income tax? Does your state claim you owe them any amount of back taxes? Or have you not filed in years? Is your heart pounding because you know they're wrong or you just don't have the money? Don't fight the state income tax board alone. The tax doctor is here to help you. The state is much more aggressive than the IRS in collecting taxes. They have the power to take your home, your car, your driver's and business licenses, even garnish your wages, freeze your bank accounts, and go after your spouse. Solve all your income tax problems permanently and keep more of your hard-earned money. Make this 100% guaranteed risk-free call right now. 800-649-0142. 800-649-0142. That's 800-649-0142. Hi. This is Rhonda Shear, and you're staying up all night or day with TV Confidential. Buying or selling a home can be one of the most stressful things we'll ever do in life, but it doesn't have to be. 
and no one knows better than our friends at Front Porch Realty Group. Their community of realtors serving the Northern Bay Area of California that cares about their clients as individuals first and foremost. Whether you're a first-time buyer or looking to lease or sell your property in the Bay Area, Front Porch Realty Group will help you through this important transition by providing you with the right information for your situation while lessening the pain. They also work with a network of realtors throughout California who provide the same high caliber of customer service. Call Front Porch Realty Group at 415-886-7411 for a realtor referral near you. You can also visit their website, frontporchrealtygroup.com, for more information on the services they provide, including upcoming workshops and seminars. For more information, call 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com. Front Porch Realty Group. They'll find the solution that works best for you. Uber is the mobile app that connects you with a driver for immediate transportation. Request a ride at the tap of a button and you have a driver curbside in minutes. You can choose to be driven in a black car, SUV, or you can choose UberX, the low-cost Uber for a ride in a hybrid or mid-range car. Payment is seamless and cashless. Build to your card on file with no need to tip. Enter the promo code TV Confidential after you download the app to receive a free first ride up to $20. For more information, go to get.uber.com forward slash go forward slash TV Confidential. Hi, this is Eileen Graff, and you are listening to TV Confidential. Roberts with a reminder that we will play part three of our conversation with Michael Bell beginning at the top of the hour. Stay tuned for that. In the meantime, on the line with us right now is Stephen Taibbi. Stephen Taibbi, former contributing writer to Videography Magazine and other publications. Stephen Taibbi is also a survivor in every sense of the world, having undergone and lived through multiple heart operations since the day he was born, including two open heart surgeries and two heart transplants. Each of these procedures were accompanied by feelings of gratitude and survivor's guilt, which Stephen talks about and more in his memoir, Grateful Guilt, Living in the Shadow of My Heart, which you can find in paperback and as an ebook through Amazon.com and wherever books are sold online. Stephen, before we went to break, you were telling us the story of the insights you had as a very young child following a visit from your siblings at the hospital when you realized for the very first time that even though you had the love and support of your family, you also knew that your family would never quite understand your condition and that it would not only tear the family apart, but that somehow you would be held to blame. Well, when you say it's all your fault, remember you're five, six years old at the time. You don't know any better. and uh, but, that, but you take it as it's your fault. And that's that's part of the grateful guilt. That's part of the guilt part. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm grateful for everything, but no, the family broke up, and that wasn't my fault in itself, but it was the cause. And um, but again, I had nothing to do with it. It wasn't my fault. But when you're a little kid, you can't process it that way. Exactly. And and my takeaway from that, Stephen, I wrote this down. That is quite a remarkable insight for you to have at such a young age, and yet at the same time, it, it is an incredible burden for reasons you just said. Yes, yeah, it, and it was, um, you know, and they, you know, and yeah, I, there's something that you have, you have to realize here 
This is 1958, when I was in for the first time. 1958. You weren't allowed to have toys. All you had was the gown they gave you. You had nothing of your own. Nothing. Not a single thing from your house. Nothing. You had, there was no television. There were no toys. There were no books. You lay in a bed 24 hours a day. Now imagine how long that seems to a five-year-old. Before I started writing the book, I literally thought I was in a hospital for two different years. I thought it was a year at a time. That's how long it felt. Um, I didn't realize it was 31 days. I thought it was a year. Yeah. Uh, and But it gave me um, an immense amount of time to think. What else did I have to do? All I could do was think. And I thought all day long because I had nothing else to do. Was it difficult to relive some of these experiences when the time came for you to sit down and write Grateful Guilt? Yeah, in particular, um, baby Carl, the, the, the little baby who died. Um, I was crying while I wrote that. I, I, I read that at a, at a book signing. I read that chapter at a book signing. I was crying then, too. I don't know what it is about baby Carl. He was a, a three-year-old. or I, can't, I don't really know how old he was. Um, because, you know, I was only five. I had no idea, you know, but baby Carl died. Uh, he went in for surgery, and he never came back. And uh, it just kind of broke me when I was in there. Yeah, and what I wrote down when I read that part of Grateful Guilt, Stephen, is that I, I'm just guessing it, it affected you because it was one of the few times you actually were, I mean, you, there were a couple of times you were able to get out of your bed and actually visit him, so to speak. You know? Yeah, he was the only time, I don't know why, I was allowed to go visit him. He was at one end of my end of the, the ward, and he was at the other end. And, and, and uh, for some reason, they let me out of my, we, they didn't allow us out of our beds. And I don't know why they let me out of my bed to visit him, because none of the other kids were out of their beds. We weren't allowed. But for some reason, they let me visit him. My parents became friendly with his parents, and... Um, you know, it was a very short time. I probably only knew baby Carl for maybe a week, if that. Of course, it seemed like a much longer time to me when I was in there. But um, I grew such a bond with this little child. Yeah. And, and um, I'm getting emotional about it. I was, I was going to say, it's. I mean, you only knew him a short time, but he has stayed with you. Oh, he stayed. I still see his face. I yeah. still hear his laugh. I still see him swinging his arms and legs in delight. I mean, he was the only bright spot inside that building for 31 days we mentioned the no food image which is what you woke up to um during your first uh, couple of visits at uh, st francis hospital um and again it goes back to the cold clinical un unemotional just stark reality that you find yourself thrust in at five years old and you know you know no no tv no food i mean and no food was was because that that was your signal. Okay, you had a you you were going to have a procedure that morning, so you can't eat. Well, that's a long time not to go without eating when you're five years old. But there, I mean, there, there are moments where I felt like I was reading a Dickens novel, you know, because <laughs> I know the hospitals have really changed a lot. <laughs> but I mean, that no food thing. I mean, uh, uh, you know, first time I saw that sign, I yeah. mean, it, it, you know. It meant you were going to have a. It meant you were going to have surgery, and I saw that sign uh, on the kid, kid across from me bed too, mm. and you know, and that was one of the ones. This little sandy-haired kid, um, he had the no food sign on his bed. This one, 
one morning, and they came to collect him. And back then, the orderlies wore white, head to foot. Uh, they, they looked like milkmen. And they came to collect him, and he ran for it. And, he, and one of the orderlies tried to, tried to catch him, which made him divert his direction. And then the other orderly tried to catch him, which made him divert his, his direction again. But now he was trapped. And when he tried to run away from that trap, he got through the first orderly, and the second orderly just scooped him up, and they put him on the table. On, on the on the uh, gurney, and the door was opposite my bed, and he was uh, he was opposite my bed, and to the right of my bed was the doors that he went through, and he was screaming. He didn't want any part of this. He was screaming and screaming, and I heard him all the, as they all the way go down the hall. You could hear this kid screaming, and he was one of the kids who never came back. Stephen Taibbi is on the line with us. Stephen uh, ran his own uh, production company for more than 25 years. He's worked in television as a producer, a director, director of photography for corporate uh, video, corporate films, and uh, also has written uh, commercials for radio and television. He's on the line with us today because we're talking about his book, Grateful Guilt, Grateful Guilt, Living in the Shadow of My Heart, a memoir of Stephen's life in and out of hospitals uh, and the story of, over, of, of living with a myriad of heart conditions, heart complications from uh, almost the day he was born, the various strategies he used, he developed to cope with his condition at the time, and uh, the insight that he has learned both about himself and the medical profession and how caregivers can treat you, probably should treat you. Uh, it's a lot of useful information, a lot of uh, coping skills that you can learn whether you are living with a serious health condition or whether you're a caregiver yourself. You want to pick up a copy of Grateful Guilt, Living in the Shadow of My Heart, which you can find wherever fine books are sold, Amazon.com, BarnesNoble.com. For more information, GratefulGuilt.com. Now, your mother was a nurse, and again, that's a blessing in disguise because at least, okay, maybe, okay, there are times you, you mentioned she kind of shielded you from certain realities because that was the culture back in 1958, but at the same time, because she worked in the medical industry, she wasn't, I mean, she fought to make sure that at least the family knew as much as she could about your condition so that you're not, you're not just totally in a vacuum, which, is, which, which was not unusual for medicine back at that time. Yeah, my mother, I'm, I'm probably alive because of my mother. Um, she thought I was ill long before anybody else did. She was fighting, fighting for some doctor anywhere to... Uh, to see what she saw when when those X-rays came back um, to see if we had tuberculosis, and I was told, and she was told that I had a really serious heart condition. Um, I mean, she was like, you know, I told you, I told you, you know. But um, my parents um, took a um, strategy. Um, I had the I had the disassociation strategies first, mm -hmm. but my parents took on a strategy when I came home that I wasn't sick, that I had to act like I was normal, and I couldn't act sick. And that, I also think, saved my life. And then that got me into thinking about having strategies that I developed on my own. And I took the strategy that my parents had, and I built on it. 
and I used to do a thing called bullying my heart. So by the, the doctors had told my parents that I wouldn't live past 10. And by the time I was 10 or 11, 11 years old, um, 10 or 11, I would get, um, my chest would feel weird, and I, I knew it was my heart, and I, I knew my heart was protesting, whatever I was doing. And I would sit down, and I would yell at my heart, internally, of course. I would yell at my heart to get back to work, to stop being so lazy. You know, do it, go, go get to work. And I would yell at it. And then I would go back to do, doing the same thing that caused it the problem in the first place. And I just thought that that's what I had to do. And I just kept doing that. I did that for years. And I think that that also was a big reason why I lived past the, the age when the doctors said I wouldn't live. Stephen Taibbi is the author of Grateful Guilt, Living in the Shadow of My Heart, a story of determination that will benefit anyone facing a serious medical condition or life challenge. Grateful Guilt is available wherever books are sold through Amazon.com, Google Books, and other online platform, Stephen's website, GratefulGuilt.com. Stephen will be back in a few weeks to share a few more of his survival tips. He will also share with us his unique take on miracles. That is coming up in a few weeks on TV Confidential. In the meantime, we'll take a quick time out, then we'll play part three of our conversation with film and TV voice actor Michael Bell during hour number two of TV Confidential. Stay with us. If you haven't been listening to TV Confidential... This is who you're missing. Michelle Nichols. Adrienne Barbeau. Leonard Malton. Joyce Bullison. Peter Onorati. Judy Norton. Robert Wagner. Robert Hook. Lee Purcell. Julie Bud. Rhonda Shear. Michelle Lee. Jacqueline Smith. Lou Antonio. Shirley Jones. And many, many more of your favorite celebrities and people behind the scenes in the world of television. That's TV Confidential. Every week on this station and every day online at televisionconfidential.com. Become a TV Confidential confidant and receive unlimited access to the last five years of TV Confidential, plus other members-only content. To find out more, go to televisionconfidential.com and click Become a Confidant. Enter the coupon code CONFIDENTIAL when you sign up, and you'll receive $5 off your first month's membership. For more information, go to televisionconfidential.com and click Become a confidant. You can listen to this show all over again as a podcast on iTunes, Spreaker, TuneIn, Apple Podcast, and wherever podcasts are found. Best of all, it's free. To subscribe to the TV Confidential Podcast, go to the homepage at televisionconfidential.com and click subscribe now. If you're living with diabetes and using insulin, you know the pain of pricking your fingers over and over again. By wearing a small remote device called a continuous glucose monitor or CGM, you can reduce the pain of pricking your fingers right away. If you're testing your blood sugar four or more times per day, injecting insulin three or more times per day, or using an insulin pump, call the Diabetic Health Hotline today. 800-712-8002. That's 800-712-8002. Paid for by U.S. Med. Are you tired of high cable TV rates? Sign up for Dish today and get a $500 bonus offer while supplies last. Plus, lock in your price for two years guaranteed. Call All American Dish, your Dish authorized retailer now. 800 296 1251. 800 296 1251. That's 800 296 1251. Offers require credit qualification, 24 month commitment, early termination fee, and e auto pay. Restrictions apply. Call for details. Alexa users, you can now listen to TV Confidential on your smart speaker by just saying, Alexa, 
Play TV Confidential. Enabling our Alexa skill is easy. To find out how, go to televisionconfidential.com slash Alexa. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty Group, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay Area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay Area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411. Or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.